Welcome to the state of... Welcome to the state of... (laughs) (laughs) We have to keep this one. This will be a process. Oh, thanks, Tim. (laughs) Welcome to the state of everything, Extra Tim. That's easy for you to say, Paul. That's easy for me to say. Oh, I'm not... Now you've forced me to put that that Exactly. Exactly. You're bugger. How are you doing, Tim? Not too bad. How's things? Yeah, very good, thanks. Very good. So, subject of your weekly document... Your well, weekly I mean, newsletter there's, there's, to everyone. There's really only one topic, isn't there? There's uh, there's really only one topic, which is coronavirus. So I, um, I welcome your take. My take on this is that the market was extremely slow to react and has now been extremely quick to price in Armageddon. And there's a there's a lovely there's a lovely quote from uh, Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, character in one of his novels, uh, is asked sort of how, how did you go bankrupt? To which the response is all slowly and then all at once. Um, and that seems to be how sort of the market's sort of belatedly woken up to um, the impact of this, uh, this perhaps not so dreadful, but evidently still quite serious um, disease. Now, you, you did say that you thought that it would be worse than people thought, and you even used the term panic early. Yeah. And we were still trying to work out at one stage, um, we were halfway through the week when the market was down a lot, it got close to support, but absolutely no support was seen and it just carried on collapsing um and the things subsequent to that is for me that's interesting and i'm sure for you is interesting is is you then had you know a a quite aggressive sort of 50 basis point cut from the fed between meetings in other words an emergency cut rather than a a very heavily forecast one and the markets just decided sort of sort of to slump to anyway yeah and 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 that that for me is one of the more dangerous aspects of this because it's there's a sort of a an idea I've long feared, which is the idea of the sort of the Fed that the Fed decides to sort of call a bull market uh, party and nobody turns up. Yes, it's the so in other words, it's finally sort of losing, assuming it had credibility. And I think to be fair, you know, that you give it you you have given it the benefit of the doubt over the last ten years, but you know, the the, the Fed is this kind of like the mother of all central banks is now is now losing is like really losing face in the eyes of the market. Yeah, uh, it's um. You know, it's the same lever, same hammer that we've been talking about. Well, again, and- exactly. You know, for, for for a man with a hammer, everything looks like a rather for a, a chimpanzee with a Kalashnikov, everything looks like something that's about to get <laughs> nailed. Um, you know, if you've only got one policy tool, it looks a bit pathetic when you then kind of imply it can be used. You can wield it against uh, a respiratory illness. Yes, I mean well, that's just ridiculous. Yes, I, I mean. I, I mean, clearly I, there are other, other other factors at play, but the yeah. reality the reality is surely that if you know that, that it, if you cut you know your your policy your short term policy rate Fed funds from whatever it is sort of one and a half to one percent, you know it was already ultra low. The fact that it's gone even ultra low, I mean, who cares? Yeah, I mean, I mean were, yeah. were people not making decisions about taking on credit? Uh, at one and a half percent, going, you know, and that's one. You know what? Let's go for it anyway. I mean, it's just it, ridiculous. Yes, it, it pushes people out the risk curve. I think that's the the worst thing about it. And I think another, another, well, interesting if not entertaining facet is that you know, if there were any doubt, you know, because you, you start to recall all the conversations that everyone's had about Japanification over the last twenty twenty five years. It's like, oh, it, it couldn't happen here. We'll get a load of what's what's now happening here. The the idea that you know those those poor and enlightened Japanese they just don't know what they're doing. They've got stuck in this deflationary rut of zero rates and no growth, and you know, we'll get a load of reality. So, how do you think this might play out? Do you think um, if there's no, let's say the stock market starts to make new lows again, um, the next reaction would be 
what cut rates I, I again? I suppose it depends on kind of what what you're what you're doing as an investor. So the the, the honest thing is is to say what we're doing as investors, which is and we have a sort of multi asset mandate. Although we run a an equity fund as well, we have a multi asset sort of brief. So our response to this has been not particularly active. We have taken off some, let's say cyclical more cycl- more industrial cyclical equity risk and we've reweighted that rotated it if you like into uh some shares of what we consider extremely attractively priced precious metals miners so you could argue that we've just taken piece from one 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 piece of equity and just put it into another but i would argue is there's something subtler going on here um and it touches on this thing that we've been talking about on the podcast now for probably uh, six months, if, if if not longer, and then namely the the risk of MMT and modern monetary theory being rolled out globally. So we've already said we've we've had this fifty basis point panic cut, which has done the Fed no favors in terms of enhancing its credibility in the market, um, and it, it hasn't led to the desired response of oh well off to the races again, no, risk on again, everybody. Um, it, it looks like, and the, it looks like the precursor to more coordinated and even more aggressive stimulus, and possibly fiscal as well as merely monetary. Um, but the the analyst I would give credit to for this has been consistently, I think, ahead of the curve, because um, he was making this point even before coronavirus was even acknowledged as a as a threat. Russell is, Napier. It's Russell Napier. It's Russell Napier again. So um, for those people who can access it. The latest, his latest, the solid ground, which I think was only came out yesterday, really makes the point. This is via the Eric Electronic Research Interchange website, but I think you may need to be an industry, a financial industry practitioner to access it. Um, but uh, it's certainly something that I, I quote from time to time. But it's very good stuff. But he makes the point, you know, basically expect, you know, ever more extreme financial repression now. Um, and he's he's called this absolutely right. Now he he was he was making this argument, you know, back in you know the tail end of last year, and that was before coronavirus was even a thing. But the fact that we've now got it, in it, so effectively what it's done is it's 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 led to a few of these big questions that we've all been wrestling with for a few years now, basically being answered. So the question is, was that the big macro theme was, okay, so which comes first, deflation or inflation? coronavirus would appear to have answered that question we get deflation we get a deflationary shock and no one could could tell what it was going to be and and now we know what it is it's 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 the spread of a disease which is a bit like flu uh but that hasn't yet got a cure uh which is basically caused and this is what my commentary is about so my commentary this week uh which i put out earlier today and for people who've signed up for it, an email i'll get it i'll get it next monday uh is titled end of empire question mark um and it starts with a with a beautiful quote uh, from Keynes that people may know, and he talks about the sort of the idyllic period of just before nine, of just before the First World War, where if if you had if you were a person of means in London, so if you were sort of middle class or or or, or upper class but wealthy, you could basically get anything you wanted. You, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Uh, you could order goods, services, you know, uh, here's, here's, here's a piece from it in particular. The inhabitant of London could order by telephone, sipping his morning tea in bed, the various products of the whole earth in such quantity as he might see fit and reasonably expect their early delivery upon his doorstep. And what he's basically talking about is like, that's like Amazon 100 years ago. And he was saying that, you know, that was what it was like. That was like the sort of golden age. And also, incidentally, the high watermark for the British Empire and for other empires at the time. 
and that was a, a kind of a, a quality of life that basically just got completely destroyed. And if it wasn't completely destroyed by the uh, events of the First World War, it was certainly completely destroyed by the time no, we, we got to 1945. So two world wars basically utterly transformed the, the Britain and the British Empire, and they and they they completely transformed much of the, if you like, the modern world. But it was the 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 the, the eerie sort of presentiment from all this relevant for today is back then nobody saw any any sort of shadows, any dark clouds on the horizon, and then war war broke out in um, you know in Eastern Europe, and then everybody got involved. It just became you know pathetic and ridiculous, and we all know you know what happened. And that was then, and you just wonder. Maybe it's not a stretch too far to to compare that with. Well, we've had like the high watermark, if you like, of globalization over the last thirty years, and the rise of China, and a very benign environment for financial assets. Uh, so that the the China and Asia entering the global workforce and the global manufacturing base has enabled all kinds of offshoring, and basically the equivalent of Keynes's, you know. Toff in bed, phoning, you know, phoning up and ordering anything in the world is now the the guy who was who would be used to basically clicking, you know, firing up his browser every morning and clicking onto Amazon and ordering anything he likes from around the world. But the difference now is that that globalization process may not have gone into reverse, but it's 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 bit suddenly been thrown into the freezer. Yeah. So. If we were to so, so 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 sorry to, to bang on so to, to to make the sort of big whole big thing point, it's to, it's to suggest that you know the, the reason the market's sort of you know been a little bit late to the game is you know what coronavirus represents is somewhat amorphous because nobody really I mean how many people in this world are experts on you know epidemiology and you know virus spread and disease and the answer is not many so you know markets as we know hate uncertainty and that's that's a kind of truism but. You just wonder. One just wonders whether the, this could be a much bigger deal because it, it calls into question everything that we've been taking for granted about globalization and international trade, and not least the implications for heavily indebted governments, which still need to service their debts, and let's not forget heavily indebted companies that also need to keep the debt service, and in, in some cases may even be gifted, you know, special privileges so they can basically get a kind of a, a debt, you know, jubilee in part. Who anything could happen now. There was talk that the Italians were going to shut all the schools and colleges across the country. Yeah, I just I just saw that on the BBC website. Yeah, I, they did actually announce that they were going to do it, and then they're saying they're going to announce something. So, but I as, think the, Jap- we, the uh, Japanese already did that, didn't they? Didn't they announce that their yes. schools were going to be yeah. shut on Monday? Yes, they did. So, my point was, it's um, it's not necessarily whether we should; it's the reaction to that we're having to deal with. And I don't know about you, but I. I think the reaction in the UK and, and elsewhere has got to be to close the schools because that's usually the way viruses are spread. And, I mean, and kids are basically germ factories, aren't they? So, I mean, that's why I, I don't have children, but I, I, I know from spending time with, with, with people, who, with parents, that, you know, half, certainly when, they were, when the kids were younger, you know, half the time they'd be, the parents would be sniffling and, you know, they, they were seen like play carriers in the office. So, uh, you know, they're, they're magnificently uh, efficient germ mechanisms and germ transmission devices. It so just, it would be logical to it would be logical to do that. But then you think where where do, where does this end? I mean, 
it, it is fascinating, and it is. I mean, I can remember previous, the you know, the impact of previous. I don't know if they're comparable events or not. Things like you know, the swine flu, SARS, foot and mouth, and perhaps the one that's actually closest because it's it, it, this has some of the sort of scare or that had some of the scare attributes of this corona panic, the um, a mad cow disease. Yeah, yeah, and so. The you know what what you need what the the ingredients for a perfect sort of global global disease panic are basically a, an entirely new thing that has no cure and people are un, unclear about how it's even, how you even catch the, the the damn thing. They're saying that it's it's harder to catch than flu, but it's it's more potent, deadly than normal flu. So that that from what I've read, I guess everyone else has read something similar and and uh but again it's not even necessarily at this point what we think it whether it is true or not. This, this, it, it, yeah, exactly. It's, it's the sort of behavioral the the, the the group psychology and that's that's perhaps one reason why I also felt you know, obligated to quote a bit of Keynes because I give Keynes stick for effectively for the sins committed by his followers in in the sort of neo Keynesian, you know, MMT type world. Um, but Keynes, in his defence, was a really bright, evidently a really bright guy who made lots of very intelligent statements. And one of those intelligent statements has to do with the so-called, if you like, casino effect of the stock market. So people wrongly, many people wrongly assume the stock market is like a casino. Now it is, if you want to make it like that. You know, in other words, if you're if you're if you're seeking thrills and spills, then the stock market will definitely deliver them to you. But it, it, but if you take a, a more pragmatic and a, and a more patient and a more long-term approach, it is absolutely clear, at least in my mind, that over time, for example, a decently run company with with you no know, top draw management and and top draw a top draw offering, um, its it share price over time will retract will will track will tends to track growth in its inherent value, growth in its book value. So in other words, take the long view, forget the sort of the short to the trading mentality, take the long view, and the market is not a casino, it is what Ben Graham called a, a weighing machine. In the short term, it's a voting machine, but in the long term, a weighing machine, it recognizes and rewards the good stuff and penalizes the bad stuff. Um, and I, and, and to, that, to this point, this whole debate, Keynes came up with something I'm sure you'll know, which is the, the concept of the, what became known as the Keynesian beauty contest. So I forget which book of his he, this first surfaced, but he says, you know, the business of investing is a bit like judging who's the prettiest girl at a, at a, at a beauty pageant. And you're not voting for the girl you think is prettiest, but you're voting for the girl that you think all the other judges are going to think is prettiest. So in other words, it's, all, it's constantly a process of trying to second guess everybody else. And as he goes on to say in this little anecdote, and, and of course this then gets develops a third and fourth and fifth level of sort of um, complexity. So you're trying to second guess everybody else and then you then you try and second guess everybody else trying to second guess everybody else except themselves so it gets you know this can sort of be reductio ad absurdum after a while but that point about the Keynesian beauty contest is now where we we kind of are all at anybody that's in the market in any capacity because you're having to make judgments about 
not just about what you think uh, the impact of coronavirus is going to be, but also what you think other people are going to think the impact yes. of coronavirus is going to be, and then you know spread your bets accordingly. So for us, the, 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 as, as equity say, equity investors, the the, the 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 path of least resistance is simply say, look, we cannot foresee how other people are going to react. All we can do is go back to first principles and go back to Ben Graham investing you know, principles, which is basically. Uh, invest not on the basis of optimism or pessimism, but on the basis of maths. So if you simply limit your uh, investable universe to here are a certain type of companies, and, and it, for us, they're very few in number uh, globally, certain type of companies that are doing a very good job and doing it well and doing it more, more to the point where their share price is extremely cheap. Um, and then your working assumption or presumption is simply can they, will they do, will they make in terms of profits or revenues something similar to what they did last year? And yeah. then that, that, that enables you to kind of see through some of the coronavirus, you know, storm and drang because you're going, well, okay, well, clearly certain types of businesses are then going to be more vulnerable than others. You know, it, it, so for example, if you're an industrial manufacturer, if you have supply chain issues, you're going to be impacted, maybe not in a big way. But if you're dependent on widgets coming out of China, that's going to have some impact on you because not all of those factories have yet reopened. And some may be shut for a while. I don't, I don't know. Um, whereas if you're, let's say, a, you know, a small cap business in a very specific, you know, in a very specific sector, let's say, I don't know, like, say, software design or something, you know, in the UK or Europe or anywhere else, are you really exposed to coronavirus at all? I mean, your clients might be, but in terms of your core product, that you know, you can you can work from home, you can do all this kind of glorious, you know, remote working and all the rest. So it's not not everyone's going to be impacted in the same way. Yeah. And if you're a manufacturer of of a hand sanitizer, then you're this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to basically retire to the retire to the beach. Because I was with I was with my partner shopping earlier today in Swiss Cottage. And we, we weren't panic buying. We were simply doing a regular shop. But we were stocking it. We were topping up on, let's say, hand sanitizer and more particularly just like, like, like liquid soap type stuff, stuff that you can dispense with a little, you know, just to squeeze some on, on, off a jar. And I, I think it took us, we had to visit probably three shops before we found a shop where this stuff hadn't just flown off the shelves. So it was it, it all gone out of boots. Uh, it had pretty much all gone out of Superdrug. And we eventually picked some up in Tesco. So people are panic buying. People are panic buying. Yeah. And I suspect that those, I mean, I, I don't know, but I suspect those shops have already um, put in extra orders. So people, I mean, and, and there are some dark implications for this, which is, and I've seen some of this in the more scurrilous commentary on Twitter, which is most definitely rising to the occasion in kind of gallows humour terms in, in all this mess. But people are making a kind of semi-serious point, which is, you know, basically they're saying, I'm beginning to suspect that up until now, most people haven't, they've never been washing their hands at all. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, so so the long long story short, um, it's still it's still complete chaos in market terms. But but we we've we've never been traders, so the sort of the trying to make you know trying to trying to squeeze profit, trying to squeeze P and L out of you know a, a short term bounce or a short term collapse isn't really our shtick. What we're trying to do is trying to just try and make a sensible, measured, unemotional assessment of of what's going on, and then sort of place bets accordingly. Happily, we we also have an opportunity set that incorporates other things, and those other things in, uh, include trend following funds, so momentum funds, and uh, the one that's probably front and center now is you know, the likes of real assets, notably gold and silver, and gold and silver miners. Right. And I think we had a question on on that topic. Yeah, I just want to ask something before we get to that question. So if you had 
uh, within your portfolio, a company that would be directly hit badly by this uh, at coronavirus outbreak, would you be, even though everything, about, everything else about the company was great, would you consider selling it or would you sell it? Possibly, or possibly consider trimming. I mean, I, I don't think we have anything quite like that. But yeah. for example, no, in the just, fund, just what, but, but for example, in the yeah. fund at the end at the end of last month, we did basically sell out of three individual holdings of companies to replace them with three other types of companies. So in other words, it was it was just kind of like you know we were rotation. selling. Yeah, it was rotation. It was selling certain types of apples to replace them with other types of apples. But it wasn't a, a market call of getting out of the stock market. Um, but that's to be fair also because the mandate of the equity fund is to invest in equities. So it's not just a sort of shelter in cash. But yeah. in, in the context of, let's say, the multi-asset investments that we're doing, uh, we've, we may have been making some very modest trimming. But again, it's it, it's been less required of us because we've got so much non-equity or, sort of, or, or, or not sort of you know, uh, cyclical equity stuff. Uh, and we've got a meaningful exposure to, to trend followers and to gold and silver. Um, so having a more balanced portfolio means that we don't have to worry about market timing to the same degree as everybody else. Brilliant. Because we're always going to be invested in something or other. Yeah. So back to the question from Mark yeah. Tabor at Clown Fishy. Uh, with the stock markets in freefall, can you provide some detail why we see gold initially increase but then drop? If money's not moving into gold, could you explain where it move, is moving to? Now, I'll just say before you answer that, when the markets were falling, gold wasn't responding correctly immediately. It did fall. I mean, it had been going up, so it was already in a very strong upward trend, probably due a, a bit of a pullback in a natural bull market that happens at any time. But of course, I can completely understand the question. You're sheltering in gold for a reason, for this reason, for panic reasons. And it's not, it doesn't seem to be working. The bloody thing's not working, Tim. What's mm. going on? I think what's happening, and again, this is supposition, because you know, it, it may well be that nobody will be able to give a definitive answer because you need to know what every you know, investment bank and brokerage firm and fund management group and high-frequency high trader, et cetera, et cetera, is doing. And no, no one will have that. No one, with the possible exception of Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, will have access to that information, or, or maybe Jeff Bezos. Um, or, or Mark Zuckerberg. But um, uh, in, in terms of, so it's, it's supposition, but what I suspect has happened, firstly, as you say, the gold price has actually been, uh, has been quite buoyant for quite a while now. So even without coronavirus, it was probably overdue, let's say, a, a sort of a correction. But I, what I suspect happened in the course of the last week, and particularly at the tail end of last week, when things really started getting, let's call it emotional, um, is that... Uh, when when the, the the equity market was gapping down, what I can believe was happening was that some investors who were long gold in some form or other were taking profits on those gold holdings to pay for same margin calls incurred from losses in the stock market. So, uh, and I know this this happened in say two thousand and eight, the dark days of two thousand and eight, that there were certain types of fund. I mean, I'm thinking of things like you know uh, macro hedge funds, for example, or certain types of hedge funds. Full stop that those more liquid hedge funds, although their underlying positions were completely sound, they they were being liquidated because they were one of the few things that the people who hold, held them could sell so that they could paper up, you know, paper over losses that they were incurring elsewhere. So one thing that can happen in a market panic is that people sell not what they want to, but what they simply can. And gold is always liquid. Yeah. So I think that's probably what was going on, that effectively gold... 
and there may be other things as well, but gold primarily, I think, was a victim of basically being that Mr. Liquidity event. Basically, gold was the ATM. And when everything hit the skids, people went, right, well, I need to, you know, I need to write a few checks now. I need to access some cash. I'll go to, I'll sell some of my gold. And I think it was as simple as that. And the fact that we now had um, yesterday's 50-bit uh, panic emergency, you know, uh, rate cut out of the fed which which is i think it's been a disaster i think it's personally been a mistake but you know sue me um the fact that, that was received quite poorly really by the market certainly on the on the day itself i think that that again is part and parcel of all this stuff that, that the likes of russell napier has been talking about the, the precursors to mmt you're going to see more and more central banks slashing rates that were already ultra low to begin with so they'll probably have marginal uh, impact apart from debauching the savings of you know uh, 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 of savers even even further, um, and then you may you may yet get a sort of a, a fiscal policy response from big government, which is going to make whatever previous policy responses look like a vicarage tea party. So that's why I would suggest to, to people who are who are in the gold market who are interested in gold in all its various forms. I don't think this is the time to pull the plug. I don't think the gold story is over. I think the gold story is only just beginning. But, in terms of that inflationary impulse. But for them, for this to happen, paradoxically, the market's got to go lower so they do more of it to make... Oh, no, exactly, make it exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because it seems it seems that the Fed has become, the Fed and other central banks, but particularly the Fed, because it's the most important, it's the biggest, most high-profile one, um, have now become a complete slave to the stock market. So basically, you know, the stock market will puke. Uh, and so the Fed will say, okay, so how much do you want, how much do you want off rates next week then? You know, yeah. how, how, how far negative do they need to go? And what? this is the real absurdity because, you know, in the Eurozone, rates are already negative and it's crushing the banking system. My, my fear was always you would hit a point where they become redundant as you drop rates. People just, the market just says, look, this is, this is ridiculous. This, we've had enough of this. Well, there's, no, a sto- there's a story I always cite about the ERM crisis because the ERM crisis of 1992 was the first proper crisis that I experienced when I was working. Uh, in the city, and uh, the, so if you rem- if if I remember correctly, that on the day whenever it was Black Wednesday, uh, on the day when they jacked rates up in the UK in a sort of you know Mission Impossible to try and try and keep sterling in the ERM, <laughs> uh, and then it got ethnically cleansed from said ERM. Um, if I remember correctly, they put rates up twice that day. Yes, and so. Both times I was working for a uh, a Japanese bank that will remain nameless, um, but everyone went, "Oh my God, they put rates! Oh my mortgage! Oh no, oh my misery!" And all the rest of it, and there was just like that was like a knee jerk, "Oh my God" reaction. Whereas the firm that my brother was working at at the time, the the first rate cut was met with let's say raised eyebrows, and the second sorry the rate hike was met with raised eyebrows, and the second rate hike was met with just wholesale laughter derision yeah in other words say they could see through this this was not going to be a long-term thing this was not going to last and i think it lasted all of 12 hours yeah and they reversed it the following day it was it was like exactly like that i was watching the markets very carefully at the time and there was just no way it was sustainable I, i mentioned on one of the other podcasts that uh the way they were getting updates about sterling was in, in, you know, oh yeah, they're getting from, getting getting it from the was the Evening Standard. Uh, well, I, that was <laughs> or me. LBC. That was, yeah, but it was it was on the radio, it was yeah. literally on the radio, and and they announced how much they were how much they were they were going to use or how much they had in their war chest from the IMF. I think it was to defend Sterling, and it was 
it was pitiful. It was yeah. 60 billion or something, which is yeah. in foreign exchange terms. About, a drop, in the, you know, drop in the ocean. Complete drop in the ocean, a few hours worth of, of, um, of, of currency trades, if that. Mm. And so it was never, raising interest rates was never going to work. And the market could see right through that. And it's, it's a normal response from central banks when their currency gets weak, it's to put up interest rates. And it, and it never works. It's, it's quite amazing how they just don't... I think the Russians, to be fair to them, were the first time when their currency started to collapse, they actually didn't raise interest rates. They just let it slide. Well, they let it slide. And I, yeah. I'm not sure if they actually cut them, but they didn't raise them. And that, mm. was, that was the right thing to do. And... Um, because you, you you can't stop it, basically. You can't stop it with rates. It's not rates that the, that's the problem. This is going to I mean, sound like a really trite analogy, but it's a bit like, um, if you remember Die Hard, the, the movie, where they 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 get, the police finally get involved or the feds finally get involved. So you've got these, you know, these uh, German, sophisticated German uh, or Scandinavian bank robbers um, led by Alan Rickman, and then they got the feds outside, and then the the the, the guys inside Nakatomi Plaza know exactly what the, the feds are going to do at every every so they go so now they're going to send in a little tank now we're going to nuke their tank and then now they're going to cut the lights off and and it's like well how are we going to get in the vault and he says patience or whatever. I forget have faith Hans or whatever he is he says and then they cut the electricity off and the safe opens because that's the that's the mechanism for making the safe the vault the vault doors open and it's like yeah. th- there are problems when you when you use the rule book and everybody knows what the rule book contains exactly exactly sun Tzu and the art of war is a, a good read in that so regard. what so so paul what's your take on i mean i we, i know we, we i think we had a question we've had a few questions on the topic of foreign exchange which is certainly not my my strong point but uh, in the in the bigger picture what's your take on what we're going through now well i i think the market has moved into the swiss franc it sold the dollar on the basis of potential rate cuts and when they were coming i think there's an anticipation that the uk will probably do the same uh, short sterling, the contract has rallied aggressively, so I wouldn't be surprised to see a rally, uh, sorry, a, a cut in UK rates as well. Um, and I mean, I'm sure all the I, people who are currently in, in a quarantine facility will be jumping through hoops at the fact that, you know, credit's now yeah. 25 or 50 basis points cheaper. Yes. Uh, I mean, putting all that to one side as to whether they should do it, you just, exactly as you've just said, we we, we know what they're doing, but let's mm. look at the reaction. So the mm. reaction should be, would, was, if you looked, if you look carefully, you saw that the stock market ended Friday on a recovery bounce and then continued up and then there was the announcement of the rate cut. So somebody knew something or, the, or there was some short covering. So there was a bit of anticipation and the dollar was weakening beforehand. But now this is out of the way. I think the dollar is going to strengthen. So I think the dollar comes back and potentially sterling comes back. It's been weak against the euro. The euro has been, been remarkably strong, I've got to say, much stronger than I thought it would be. So I, I think the dollar and sterling come back. Um, now, I'm not sure sterling will be stronger than the dollar, but I think that um, that the, certainly the dollar is going to be looking very interesting at these levels. And dare I say it, the euro should come under further pressure. So um, so that, that's my take on, on the, the way this might play out. Um, you know, the, the, the US have got their rate cut in early, but the weakness has probably already been anticipated. And now 
the trend is for everyone else to follow suit. And that's but this when- is this is this is the stuff that you know for me is it's literally the kind of stuff that, that keeps me awake at night to the extent that you know I've been worried for years longer than I care to remember about you know what happens when yeah when the Fed decides to call a bull market party and nobody nobody turns up. So oh, what, yeah. happens, what happens when when the central banks finally you know effectively run out of ammunition? Because you could say they never will because they've now got all these new policy tricks. I think they've learned, but I think it's actually the 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 ball will be or the baton will be passed over to government to, to do the fiscal thing. Because you know as you said, to man with hammer, everything looks like nail. The central banks are irrelevant to this now. They should just step out of the way and let government do whatever government's going to do. Yeah. But that, I think that governmental response is going to be mental and it's going to complete potentially a completely transform the inflationary deflationary outlook and b to 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 give again credit where credit's due to to, you know to russell napier um the words financial repression you're going to see a lot more of them before this this mess is over yeah it's rather convenient isn't it that um america was entering into a trade war and all of a sudden <laughs> all of a sudden all the exports from china are completely locked up at the at the ports i mean oh you cynic you i know well, yeah um i mean I, i'm not saying it, it was engineered but my god it's it's oh i'm saying side. it was engineered in the wuhan bio laboratory <laughs> <laughs> We've got some fantastic guests that we've we've podcast in the can, I should say, that we've we've got to get out. And we've just and, and we've just on a matter of housekeeping, we've just put up what is it uh, today or last night? We put up a Pete Vilhone. Yeah, Pete Vilhone, very interesting chap. Deep value. I love that. Love his expression of deep value. Trying to buy a pound for twenty pence and how he does it. And he came up with some very interesting, probably out of favour. Yeah, probably um, environmentally insensitive. Yes. And very prescient what he was saying about the market hitting a downdraft. So I, I thought that was very interesting. So Pete Wilhelm, and then we've got Craig Drake. We've also yep. got Alex Balfour, Chris McIntosh, and a really interesting uh, character, slightly off-road for us, but one that we feel passionately, or certainly you, you do, Tim, is um, the climate change debate and you know, we've got an expert on Gregory Wrightstone to talk about that. So all all of those are coming up and will be released in the next few weeks and months. So just want to say thank you to Tim to giving us for giving us such a full insight into what you're thinking about at the moment. And thank you for listening. And we will catch you next time. Thanks for your questions as well. Keep them coming. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.